Chapter Four of the Sport of the Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sport of the Gods by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Chapter Four. From a Clear Sky. The inmates of the Oakley House had not been long in their beds before Hamilton was out of his and rousing his own little household. You, Joe, he called to his son. Get up from there and come right here. You've got to help me before you go to any shop this morning. You, Kitty, stir your stumps. Miss, I know your ma's a-dressin' now. If she ain't, I'll bet I'll be after her in a minute, too. You's all layin' round snoozin' When you all dispintly knows this is the morning, Mr. Frank, go away from here. It was a cool autumn morning, fresh and dew-washed. The sun was just rising, and a cool, clear breeze was blowing across the land. The blue smoke from the house, where the fire was already going, whirled fantastically over the roofs like a belated ghost. It was just the morning to doze in comfort and so thought all of Barry's household except himself. Loud was the complaining as they threw themselves out of bed. They maintained that it was an altogether unearthly hour to get up. Even Mrs. Hamilton added her protest, until she suddenly remembered what morning it was, when she hurried into her clothes and set about getting the family's breakfast. The good humor of all of them returned when they were seated about their table, with some of the good things of the night before set out, and the talk ran cheerily around. "'I do declare,' said Hamilton, "'you all's as bad as them white people was last night. The way they waited into that food was a caution.' He chuckled with delight at the recollection. "'I reckon that's what they come for. I wasn't paying so much attention to what they eat as to the way the women was dressed. Why, Miss Judge Hill?' was the most gorgeous. Oh, yes, ma'am, and Miss Lessing wasn't no ways behind her, put in Kitty. Joe did not condescend to join in the conversation, but contented himself with devouring the good things and aping the manners of the young men, whom he knew had been among last night's guests. Well, I gotta be going, said Barry, rising. There'll be early breakfast at the house this morning, so Mr. Frank can catch the first train. He went out cheerily to do his work. No shadow of impending disaster depressed his spirits. No cloud obscured his sky. He was a simple, easy man, and he saw nothing in the manner of the people whom he served that morning at breakfast save a natural grief at parting from each other. He did not even take trouble to inquire who the strange white man was who hung about the place. When it came time for the young man to leave, with the privilege of an old servitor, Barry went up to him and bid him good-bye. He held out his hand to him, and with a glance at his brother, Frank took it and shook it cordially. Good-bye, Barry, he said. Maurice could hardly restrain his anger at the sight, but his wife was moved to tears at her brother-in-law's generosity. The last sight they saw as the carriage rolled away towards the station was Barry standing upon the steps waving a hearty farewell 
and Godspeed. How could you do it, Frank? gasped his brother as soon as they had driven well out of hearing. Hush, Maurice, said Mrs. Oakley gently. I think it was very noble of him. Oh, I felt sorry for the poor fellow, was Frank's reply. Promise me you won't be too hard on him, Maurice. Give him a little scare and let him go. He's possibly buried the money anyhow. I shall deal with him as he deserves. The young man sighed and was silent the rest of the way. Whether I fail or succeed, you will always think well of me, Maurice, he said in parting, and if I don't come up to your expectations, well, forgive me, that's all. His brother wrung his hand. You will always come up to my expectations, Frank, he said. Won't he, Leslie? He will always be our Frank, our good, generous-hearted, noble boy. God bless him. The young fellow bade them a hearty goodbye, and they, knowing what his feelings must be, spared him the prolonging of the strain. They waited in the carriage, and he waved to them as the train rolled out of the station. He seems to be sad at going, said Mrs. Oakley. Poor fellow, the affair of last night has broken him up considerably, but I'll make Barry pay for every pang of anxiety that my brother has suffered. Don't be revengeful, Maurice. You know what Brother Frank asked of you. He is gone, and will never know what happens, so I may be as revengeful as I wish. The detective was waiting on the lawn when Maurice Oakley returned. They went immediately to the library, Oakley walking with the firm, hard tread of a man who is both exasperated and determined, and the officer gliding along with the cat-like step, which is one of the attributes of his profession. Well, was the impatient man's question, as soon as the door closed upon them. I have some more information that may or may not be of importance. Out with it. Maybe I can tell. First, let me ask you, if you had any reason to believe that your butler had any resources of his own, say to the amount of three or four hundred dollars. Certainly not. I pay him thirty dollars a month and his wife fifteen dollars, and with keeping up his lodges and the way he dresses that girl, he can't save very much. You know that he has money in the bank? No. Well, he has over eight hundred dollars. What? Barry? It must be the pickings of years. And yesterday it was increased by five hundred more. The scoundrel? How is your brother's money? In bills? It was in large bills and gold, with some silver. Barry's money was almost all in bills of small denomination and silver. A poor trick. It could easily have been changed. Not such a sum without exciting comment. He may have gone to several places. But he only had a day to do it in. Then someone must have been his accomplice. That remains to be proven. Nothing remains to be proven. Why, it's as clear as the day that the money he has is the result of a long series of peculations, and that this last is the result of his first large theft. That must be made clear to the law. It shall be. I should advise, though, no open proceedings against this servant 
until further evidence to establish his guilt is found. If the evidence satisfies me, it must be sufficient to satisfy any ordinary jury. I demand his immediate arrest. As you will, sir. Will you have him called here and question him, or will you let me question him at once? Yes. Oakley struck the bell, and Barry himself answered it. You're just the man we want, said Oakley shortly. Barry looked astonished. Shall I question him, asked the officer, or will you? I will. Barry, you deposited $500 at the bank yesterday. Well, sure, Mr. Oakley, was the grinning reply. If you ain't the beatest of man to find out things I ever seen. The employer half rose from his chair. His face was livid with anger. But at a sign from the detective, he strove to calm himself. You had better let me talk to Barry, Mr. Oakley, said the officer. Oakley nodded. Barry was looking distressed and excited. He seemed not to understand it at all. Barry, the officer, pursued, you admit having deposited $500 in the bank yesterday? Certainly. There ain't no reason why I shouldn't admit it, excepting around among these jealous niggas. Uh-huh. Well, now, where did you get this money? Well, I'll work for it, of course. Where you suppose I got it? Tain't dropping off trees, I reckon. Not round this part of the country. You worked for it? You must have done a pretty big job to have got so much money all in a lump. But I didn't get it in a lump. Why, man, I've been saving that money for more than four years. More than four years? Why didn't you put it in the bank as you got it? Well, mostly it was too small. And so I kept it in the old sock. I told Fanny that some day, if the bank didn't bust with all the rest I had, I'd put it in too. She was always saying it was too much to have lying around the house. But I just told her that no robber was going to bother with the poor nigger down in the yard with the rich white man up at the house. But finally I listened to her and deposited yesterday. You're a liar, you're a liar, you black thief, Oakley broke in impetuously. You have learned your lesson well, but you can't cheat me. I know where that money came from. Calm yourself, Mr. Oakley, calm yourself. I will not calm myself. Take him away. He shall not stand here and lie to me. Barry suddenly turned ashen. You say you know where that money come from? Where? You stole it, you thief, from my brother, Frank's room. Stole it? My God, Mr. Oakley, you believe a thing like that after all the years I've been with you? You've been stealing all along. Why, what shall I do? said the servant helplessly. I tell you, Mr. Oakley, ask Fanny. She'll know how long I've been saving this money. I'll ask no one. I think it would be better to call his wife, Oakley. Well, call her, but let this matter be done with soon. Fanny was summoned, and when the matter was explained to her, first gave evidences of giving way to grief. But when the detective began to question her, she calmed herself and answered directly, just as her husband had. Well posted, sneered Oakley. Arrest that man. Barry had begun to look more hopeful during Fanny's recital, but now the ashen look came back into his face. At the word arrest, 
his wife collapsed utterly and sobbed on her husband's shoulder. "'Send the woman away.' "'I won't go,' cried Fanny stoutly. "'I'll stay right here by my husband. You shan't drive me away from him.' Barry turned to his employer. "'You believe that I stole from this house after all the years I've been in it, after the call I took your money and your valuables, after the way I put you to bed from many a dinner, and you woke up to find all your money safe. Now can you believe this? His voice broke, and he ended with a cry. Yes, I believe it, you thief, yes. Take him away. Barry's eyes were bloodshot as he replied. Then damn you, damn you, and if that's all these years count for, I wish I had stole it. Oakley made a step forward, and his man did likewise but the officer stepped between them. Take that damned hound away, or by God I'll do him violence. The two men stood fiercely facing each other. Then the handcuffs were snapped on the servant's wrist. No, no, shrinked Fanny. You mustn't, you mustn't. Oh, my God, he ain't no thief. I'll go to Miss Oakley. She never will believe it. She sped from the room. The commotion had called a crowd of curious servants into the hall. Fanny hardly saw them, as she dashed among them, crying for her mistress. In a moment she returned, dragging Mrs. Oakley by the hand. "'Tell him, oh, tell him, Miss Leslie, that you don't believe it. Don't let him rest, Barry.' "'Why, Fanny, I can't do anything. It all seems perfectly plain, and Mr. Oakley knows better than any of us, you know.' Fanny, her last hope gone, flung herself on the floor, crying, Oh, God, oh, God, he's going for sure. Her husband bent over her, the tears dropping from his eyes. Never mind, Fanny, said, never mind. He's about to come out all right. She raised her head and, seizing his manacled hands, pressed them to her breast, wailing in a low monotone, Gone, gone. They disengaged her hands and led Barry away. Take her out, said Oakley sternly to the servants, and they lifted her up and carried her away in a sort of dumb stupor that was half a swoon. They took her to her little cottage and laid her down until she could come to herself and the full horror of her situation burst upon her. End of chapter 4 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas